I am personally not that much into this nutritious stuff. You know, I'm German. We drink beer. We eat meat. We we just live normal. Bavarians. The sensitivity and specificity of ultrasound to diagnose A2 and A4 polyruptures specifically were reported to be 90 to 98% and then 98 to 100% respectively. So very high for both. Don't do that. Okay. Off belay. Okay. There. I got the signal in lays off. I just finished leading this climb. Greetings. This is the Wilderness and Environmental Medicine Life podcast for June 2021. It's going to be shorter than the last podcast we did, which was a lot longer, and I'm on a road trip. So there's one paper and one paper only that we're going to discuss that is timely, a review article in this month's journal entitled Finger Flexor Pulley Injuries in Rock Climbers by Drs. Paulo Miro, Eric Van Sonnenberg, Dylan Saab, and Volker Scheffel, the world expert on climbing injuries. So let's do this. Summer is coming up, and we're going to discuss finger flexor pulley injuries in rock climbers. Yes, the lockdown is ending. We want to go outside. We want to climb. But this article is very timely, and it's written by Paulo Miro, and many of you in the WMS and the climbing world know Dr. Volker Scheffel. And thanks both of you for taking the time to discuss this timely article. And Paulo, tell us a little bit about yourself briefly, first of all. Sure. So I recently graduated from the me from medical school at the University of Arizona, and now I'm in Salt Lake City, about to start my residency in diagnostic radiology at the University of Utah. Um, I absolutely love rock climbing, primarily bouldering, um, but I also enjoy other outdoor sports such as skiing and ultra running. Um, I'm happy to be here and we'll let Dr. Schoffel speak most of the time as I still have a lot to learn and have little experience or expertise relative to Dr. Schoffel. Thanks for having me. Oh, absolutely. And Volker, you've written many articles and books on climbing injuries. You're well known. How did you become interested in climbing injuries? How did you become interested in climbing? Well, you know, that was quite easily becoming interested in climbing injuries. I'm climbing in the Frankenjura, which is like uh, Germany's most royal known climbing area and it's very bouldery very finger pocketed rock climbing plus uh, i've had a lot of injuries myself and then i figured out they're not there weren't a lot of people around who could actually help me so i got interested and with all the injuries i learned more and more and more and uh, i did not have had all injuries i see in my patients but i had a lot of them interesting so it uh, comes from personal experience that's often how we do form our careers well you know, one interesting question now is that, I mean, for instance, Volker, you started in the Frankenjura. I became interested in climbing in Joshua Tree in Yosemite. And for me, it was, you know, somewhere in the mid 80s when people would look at you in a strange manner, like, what kind of person are you? You're a renegade from another planet. I mean, are you a hippie? But now it's become cool. It's a cool thing to do, rock climbing. It's so mainstream. What do you think has contributed to that? Yeah, that, that is a very good question, actually. And I have had the same experience. I just started in the 80s and, and climbers were a weird thing. And people would watch us climbing and asking us like if that would be graded K1 or K2 or something. So I realized I didn't know what a K1 and K2 and so on and so forth system meant. This is the Hussler and Schell Via Ferrata type of scale where K1 in the Hussler scale is flat to steep, mostly rocky or interspersed with rocks with exposed passages possible. K2 is a steep rocky terrain where there's more exposed sites and there may be wire ropes, chains, and whatnot. 
And there could be difficulties without safety elements up to grade three in the UIAA scale, which is comparable to a 5-4 using the Yosemite Decimal System or a 3 minus in the French system. And this conversation probably ensued in the 80s because in the time, a lot of Germans probably thought that itinerant climbers were climbing the Efrata scales when in actuality, they were setting up a completely different type of sport climbing system in Germany, in France, and wherever else. So that is the context, I believe, on that one. Then all my friends are within the climbing industry, like building climbing walls, selling holes and stuff. And mid-90s, we thought that the whole hype about climbing is already peaking. You know, it was continually becoming more and more popular. And we thought, well, it can't go on, but it still goes on. And now in Germany, still the indoor gyms are, are coming up in every big city. And then if every big city has one, we have a second one and a third one. And the, the whole hype doesn't stop. I think... Um, from a sports medical doctor perspective, not from a climate's perspective, but from a, just a, a sports person, it is a very good training method for your whole body, which a high fun, which has a high fun factor, and it's completely natural. You don't need any certain skills to start off, and basically by doing something in a childish, playful manner, you train yourself. But you don't need to be, you know, pushing bars all the time and counting one to ten or something. You're just basically playing around, and at the end, you're totally wasted, and next day you look like Arnold. It might be a tumor. It's not a tumor. It's great. Well, that's very true. So people have obviously liked the benefits of climbing, and I think even there's some articles that discuss mental health and improvement in mental health, depression scores. Uh, cognitive skills with regard to elderly climbers and improvement in cognition. So it's interesting that you're saying that because I think it climbing in and of itself can do many things for many people. That's definitely good. And some of us, we just want to push hard. It's, you know, somewhat competitive or we just like to compete against ourselves. So we want to push the limits. We want to climb harder and harder. Techniques in training have also become better, maybe more systematic, but Besides just going out and climbing and having fun, what are some reliable or more evidence-based techniques that you have all found that could improve one's climbing ability, climbing skill? I think we are still here on a long way to learn. Considering the time we have the sport, the sport scientific approach still needs to be elaborated faster. I think the medical part, like the injury part, that is far ahead of the training method methodology part. I think we concentrate too much on the pure finger strength climbing orientated training and neglect every adjunct compensatory training or like building up the full physique. What I see in most of my patients or in many of them, they complain about finger pain and they just climb only using basically their fingers they don't have much core strength they don't focus on like isolating the moves and reducing the stress of the fingers by having strong shoulders big upper core good posture decreasing the load onto the fingers so i think one of the best and also we you know the proof isn't there scientifically but i think a very effective preventive matter actually is reducing the stress onto the fingers and diluting it into the full body with having all these adjunct muscle groups working in a better way. 
And we have our, our own program on that. It's called ACT. I don't know if you have heard about that. That's a free PDF download adjunct compensatory training for rock climbers booklet. And that focuses on the adjunct training next to the specific climbing training, which would actually hopefully help to decrease the impact onto the fingers. Because like, you know, what we did in the 80s, we were just, we were hanging with extra weights for hours on little edges. Mm -hmm. And uh, you can see the scars on our fingers and our crippled knuckles and stuff like that. And I don't think it must be like that. The ACT program alluded to is an excellent resource, and it's available for free online at www.act.clinic. It goes over the conditioning techniques we've discussed, as well as the rehabilitation exercises for climbing specific injuries. Make sure you discuss any of these programs with your physician as needed. At any rate, it's a very readable resource with nice photos and diagrams, and it looks really good. So thank you, Volker, for putting that out. I was going to say something similar, just anecdotally. I'm not familiar with evidence-based, but I see a huge obsession with finger training within my within my group of climbers, the obsession with hangboarding and adding weight to, while hangboarding or adding weight while doing weighted pull-ups, that kind of thing. And less so of an obsession with what Dr. Schoffel is commenting on is diversifying your training. Um, and even for myself, as I started running and, and focusing on more of my core workouts, I've seen a huge uh, improvement in my own climbing. So I, I also agree with what he had been saying. Yeah, improving one's aerobic capacity, core strength, shoulder girdle strength. I think those are very important as well because those will hopefully reduce the stress uh, on the fingers. And so we're going to be talking about collagen now. We're going to be talking about joints and whatnot in our article that we're going to be discussing about finger flexor pulley injuries. And this is fairly common. And you both mentioned that there's been a 50% increase in climbing injuries, at least from U.S. data, from a period of from 1990 to 2014. Now, many of these were lower extremity injuries. There were a variety of studies that were examined, many climbing styles. There's bouldering, there's single roots, there's multiple pitch roots, there's alpine roots in the mountains. And of course, we want to discuss the upper extremity injuries as well. But do you think, and do you think, Paulo, that crash pads have diminished lower extremity injuries more so, at least for bouldering? Interestingly, I, I had to look into this to find some evidence because, of course, anecdotally, I'd answer yes. How could crash? How could the use of crash pads not lower um, the incidence of injuries? But interestingly, I found a study by Gary Josephson published in this journal specifically from 20, 2007 that investigated if injury patterns varied in boulders who enlisted preventive measures versus those who did not. And he included number of pads and spotters in his studies and found that the number of spotters, use of pads and number of pads were unrelated to the incidence of injuries. Of course, he mentioned that the results were limited by a large portion of participants being lost to follow-up and the, the whole study method was survey-based and there was no objective or strict definition for injury. But that was an article that I found within the Wilderness Environmental Medicine Journal that commented on use of pads not affecting injury outcome. Although, again, anecdotally and experientially, I would say of course they do. A lot of these studies have a selection bias. If you look at the data from the US, you, you probably, with the many numbers of lower extremity injuries, ankle fractures, dist, uh, strains, and stuff like that, there's the NICE study, which used the NICE database, which is basically looking at all the admissions at uh, the ERs in a certain group of hospitals. And obviously, a ankle fracture would get there 
and would get into the database as a climbing injury, a finger pulley injury would not show up there. So this is certainly, in this selection, not existing. This is why all these epidemiological studies who look at trauma see more lower extremity trauma. If I look at my patients, we have a continuous database for more than 10 years of every climbing injury entering my clinic. Then there's another selection bias in the opposite direction. I'm a shoulder surgeon. I'm a sports orthopedic doctor. I do a lot with fingers. So certainly I see a lot of second opinion, finger injuries, shoulder injuries, but I do not see an ankle fracture if it's not happening in front of our hospital because they go someplace else and get treated adequately. But the other guys would seek a second opinion. So I still think the, the most frequent injury in climbing is up onto the lower extremity after a fall, but the most specific injuries are onto the upper extremity. Let's say I'm with a climber who's doing a hard 5-12A. He's doing a 7A route. Pockets, crimps, whatever you want. Climber is going up. He's suddenly complaining of this sudden sharp pain to the ring finger after performing a closed crimp move. What are some questions I should ask this climber? What are some of the findings I might encounter if the injury is, say, for example, in the A2 pulley injury? And what are some immediate steps I should take to render first aid? And if the climber says that he wants me to just circumferentially tape his pulley, his finger, so that he can give it one more try. Is this a wise idea? I was just going to say, you already described a lot of the things that you'd be worried about in terms of identifying a pulley injury with acute onset of pain, the use of the closed uh, crimp grip position, and you know maybe he had slipped a foot or something and eccentrically loaded his pulley. In regards to to first aid, and you know, I I have never had a situation where I've had to take care of a friend who had an acute pulley injury, but I would certainly not recommend for him to get back on the wall, especially with only circumferential taping. I forget who it is. I think it's Schweizer, but who investigated uh, circumferential taping and preventing pulley injury, so not necessarily post pulley injury, but he found that essentially both taping over the A2 pulley and taping over the distal end of the proximal phalanx were only minimally effective in decreasing the demand on the A2 pulley. So we know that it doesn't really do much in preventing pulley injuries and therefore probably doesn't do much in helping him get get back on the wall the wall and have that A2 pulley integrity returned. So I don't I won't talk about H taping. I'll, I'll let Dr. Schofel introduce that. Um, but that's actually where I would probably head towards uh, recommending him to do it. Yeah, I, I totally agree. We did not find anything effective on preventative taping. Also, from being an avid climber myself, and I had an A2 pulley injury, I tried to continue climbing on the day, but it did not really work out. Mm-hmm. It's just too painful. So I would just do, the, at the comps, I do the normal thing, icing, mild compression, right. keeping up mobility. We very rarely actually use a splint immobilization, and then I would try to do as fast as possible a ultrasound evaluation to finally diagnose the injuries. I don't think that even with, like today, I probably saw four pulley ruptures in my clinic. So I see quite a lot of them, but I don't dare to actually clinically diagnose it without an ultrasound. If available, I use the pulley rings right on site. Because they are not completely circumferential, they are halfway open to the side. I have them with me in my kit at the if I'm in charge of the World Cup or a training camp or something. It does not harm to put them on right at the beginning until you get the ultrasound. But that would be just if you if you are capable of having these. So right, you talk about these rings that are 
not completely closed circumferentially. And that is, if I'm uh, correct in saying this, it, it's because it preserves neurovascular integrity. Is that right? Yes. Andy Schwa Andy Andreas Schweitzer came up with this idea. And we used, at, at the beginning, we just, we just used circumferential semi-elastic rings. Then we were just using the H tape, and then Andy came up with a study where he basically has this clamp on, on the back, on the dorsal and the palmar aspect, and it relocates the dislocated tendon into its bed, basically, leaving the soft tissue out on both sides so the neurovascular bundle can basically have a free space there without causing any constriction. You need to understand, like, we anal analyze pulley injuries in K. Davis studies, and if the pulley tears, mostly tears in an eccentric movement, and it does not tear, like, in the middle, but mostly it's like, if this is the tendon, it's on top, and it tears on the left or on the right side. Mm -hmm. And then basically with a ring, you reattach it, or you relocate it, and then you have time where it can actually heal at the spot where it is. If you do not relocate the tendon next to the bone, then the pulley scars, but the increased tendon bone distance will be permanently. Which, on the other hand, is not so bad. We did a study on that, and I have one here. Gives you a little bit of an extension deficit, but like I can almost flex it. I can operate like, okay, yes. We found no strength deficit on a long-term perspective if you have a old pulley injury where the pulley did not grow together and you have a permanent increased tendon bone distance because that increased tendon bone distance biomechanically increases the lever arm onto the PIP joint, basically increasing the flexor strength. That's also the explanation why if you have multiple pulley injuries, the flexor tendons are so far off the center of rotation of the PIP joint that the finger must get into a contracture position. And that's the reason why we would do surgery, to decrease the tendon bone distance. Otherwise, over a long time, the finger will just get into its contracture position. Oh, it does not must be, but it, it can very likely. So it can get into a contracture state. At the very least, you'll get this phenomenon called bowstringing. Does bowstringing in and of itself, without a contracture, does that decrease one's climbing performance if it were a more mild injury over the long term? Is it a problem that does need surgery at all times? What would you think? No, no, no. We're, we heavily discussed it if it needs surgery at all. At the moment, we distinguish if it's a, a, if it's a clinical or just a, an ultrasound bowstring. Clinical bowstringer would be actually visible. And if you have a visible bone stringing, it's not a single pulley injury. It's always A2 and A3 or A3 and A4. If the patient is compliant, meaning we start the treatment within the first two weeks, where we can still relocate the tendon into its bed next to the bone so the pulley can heal, and he's wearing the clamp or the, the, the pulley ring, then it's a good chance that it will actually heal conservatively. And he just needs to notice if there's a tendency of the finger getting into a flexion contracture. That needs to be avoided. Whenever the flexion contracture is more than 20 degrees, I certainly would recommend a surgical approach because otherwise you have a fixed flexion contracture. And Andy Schweitzer actually have, had just recently published, I think, five cases with a double pulley, with a triple pulley injury where he treated A2 and A4 with the rings with a good outcome. And I have two patients and I did the same. I think it is possible. I still think the standard approach would be surgical because that's the safer way to have a good outcome. You need to have a really compliant patient to go conservatively. 
because you do not want the contracture because the contracture is actually really bad. And if, if you have a contracture like 45 degrees, then an amputation is actually the better solution than having a finger like that, especially if you're in the States and you want to do crack climbing. You discussed this uh, eccentric load. I was wondering, could you describe briefly what that means for some of the listeners that might not understand eccentric contractions? Yeah, you have two kinds of contractions of a muscle. The first and the normal one is concentric, meaning the muscle is pulling in the direction to its center, to its muscle belly, meaning for the biceps, basically you're flexing the arm. You have an eccentric contraction where the muscle belly works against it being overstretched. That is also or always the movement which is more effective in a training way. Like this is like negative pull-ups. A pull-up is a concentric movement and, and the eccentric movement is lowering, lowering off slowly and that places more stress to the muscles. So holding on to a climbing hold, you originally you think, okay, he's, he's pulling onto something. He's squeezing the hold. But then imagine so what you do, you grab the hold. So your fingers are in a, on, a, on a position, probably in a crimping position. And then the moment you actually perform the move, you're holding onto the hole, but then you're lifting your body up. You're pulling up on it. And while you pull, your fingers are slightly opening. And that is the eccentric movement. And we also found that the friction underneath the pulleys matter. And the combination of the friction of the pulleys and this eccentric movement actually brings a higher load onto the pulley than a concentric movement. We did a biomechanical cadaver study on that and could show that actually the pulleys rupture more frequently on eccentric movement and obviously on a crimp position. Let's go back to this case if we might. So this climber looks like he's got an A2 pulley rupture. He thinks that he ought to go to the hospital. So I take him to my emergency department and being the ultrasound expert that I am, I decide to perform an ultrasound on the injured finger. I think actually a great modality to look at these sort of things. But what are the findings that I would expect to see and how reliable is the ultrasound in diagnosing these injuries? Well, you start with the, with, the, with the data facts and I then submit some personal experience. Sure. So I think the, the numbers that we quoted in the paper were that the sensitivity and specificity of ultrasound to diagnose A2 and A4s, pulley ruptures specifically, were reported to be 90 to 98% and then 98 to 100% respectively. So very high for both. And then Dr. Schoffel commented on a few things that you might see on ultrasound um, if you do have a pulley rupture. So you could have a direct pulley discontinuity, which is obviously a direct sign of pulley injury, but also more importantly, an indirect sign of pulley injury would be the increased tendon to bone distance, which again, to revisit this, it makes a lot of intuitive sense. If the normal function of the pulleys is to maintain the flexor tendons directly against the bone, the phalange, if the pulley is injured, the, the flexor tendon, he talks about the moment arm, is going to get farther and farther away from your finger. And so you'll see an increased tendon to bone distance. There are specific diagnostic thresholds that have been suggested in the literature for different pulley ruptures. And I think the one that we recommend in the paper is greater than two millimeters as the diagnostic threshold. And then we can talk about a volar plate translation distance as well for A3 pulley ruptures. Here's what the investigators say in the paper, that they prefer using a tendon to bone distance of greater than two millimeters as an adequate, highly sensitive and specific threshold to diagnose A2 and A4 pulley ruptures. Diagnosis of A3 pulley ruptures by measurement of the distance between the volar plate and the flexor tendons has been suggested with a distance greater than 0.9 millimeter 
giving a 76% sensitivity and a 94% specificity. But the sensitivity and the specificity of ultrasound to diagnose A2 and A4 pulley ruptures has been reported to be 90 to 98% and 98 to 100% respectively. So the sensitivity and specificity in the paper, pretty good. So the ultrasound, yes, highly sensitive, highly specific in diagnosing the injuries that we're discussing and is the initial imaging technique of choice to evaluate these suspected injuries. What is interesting for that probably is you have a different concept in the States than we have in Germany for that. Because in Germany, we don't, the orthopedic surgeon or the surgeon or whoever, the doctor, the primary care doctor, does the ultrasound always by himself. Like in all my rooms, I have like two or three ultrasound machines I'm working with every day in clinics. Mm -hmm. So it is like my third eye. I don't need to send the guy anywhere. And especially ultrasound uh, uh, examinations of the hand are super simple. If you are the surgeon and you cut a, you're cutting into the skin all the time, you know what to look for. You know how the tissue looks underneath. And you have a linear probe. And I started teaching that myself with a 7.5 millimeter probe. This was like completely blurry in water basing in like 94. Nowadays, you have an 18 millimeter probe and it gives you such a clear image. I can see the fibers. I can see the pulley directly. I can see if it slips underneath the tendon. I don't even, don't even need to darken the room anymore. It's, and this is just a, a one-minute examination. And I almost never send a pulley injury for an MRI. So you have an 18 megahertz probe. Is it a flat probe? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a hockey stick. The tip is three millimeters and it's seven millimeters long and it just goes for one digit. I was just testing the handhelds and you co it works very well with the 12 megahertz handheld as well. Interesting. And you're, are you still using a water bath? or No. No, not just jail. I use jail. Just jail. Wow. Interesting. In okay. the beginning, we used the water bathing, but it's not necessary anymore. Then we had the jail pad offs, but they degenerate so fast, so they kind of get smelly after a week. So the jail works perfect. And the images are super nice. So we have a new book coming out. It's called Climbing Medicine, a textbook, medical textbook on climbing injuries. It's in print setting right now. The German version was published last year. And due to this very nice pandemic, we had more time. And we finished the, the English version, which should come out like in July or something. And there's uh, a, a, a chapter on the ultrasound methodology, doing how to perform it and, and what are the cutoffs. And I can only encourage people, just do it. It is easy. Well, so it sounds like the confidence you have in ultrasound means that you don't necessarily need an MRI. Would you recommend that I obtain x-rays or any blood work? Is there any of that, those sort of modalities that would help me, or are they pretty unnecessary? In our algorithm, we still have in the first set basically an x-ray to exclude another injury. I deviate from that algorithm if I'm very sure it's just a soft tissue injury. And again, with the ultrasound, I see all the small fractures directly. The ultrasound is even more sensitive for the fractures. You see more lines, especially in growth plate fractures, which are actually no fracture, but you just think it is. It may be one. If you would be in a general ER setting, yes, I would do an ultrasound. Uh, I would do a, a standard X-ray. And then if you don't have the capabilities of doing the ultrasound, you can always send for MRI. 
But the disadvantage of the MRI is that it's a static position. With the ultrasound, you can move the finger, even in a thing that you call a forced flexion, like he presses against the flexion, and that increases the tendon bone distance because it brings stress to the tendon. So if you would have a perfect MRI, and we do this in our hospital, then you would do the MRI in a crimping position, basically. But that is speaking like we have a radiologist who is like an avid climber and loves to play around doing that. You cannot ex expect that in a normal radiographic clinic to do that. So this is the point why it is always difficult to get a good MRI of the pulley injuries. And just for the listeners, uh, I encourage you to look at table one. I think it's an excellent table. And it gives you, the listener, actually you, the reader, because I want you to read this article, the proper therapeutic guidelines for treating these injuries. And rest is discussed, ice, physical therapy, taping methods. There's, you know, a few taping methodologies, splints that are described in the literature. But getting back to this climber, let's say he's got a grade two injury, not horrible, not enough to warrant surgery at least. He is also a climbing guy and he has clients that are gonna need his services in one month. And he's asking me as his physician, if I could inject a steroid into the affected area to hasten recovery, is this recommended? No, certainly not. You, you should never in, in inject a steroid into a fresh injury. I can see the point of the mountain guy because I have these people with, in my clinics all, obviously every day. The more consequently you're treating your pulley injury, the faster you as the patient are going to be out of the injury. Basically, from my own experience, my pulley injury was neglected. I did a week off and then I went for a climbing competition and then I kept on climbing. But on the other hand, I had problems for almost a year. If you treat it correctly, then after six to eight weeks, you're almost back to the rock, especially if it's a grade two injury. I had people climbing AC after two or six weeks already, pain-free. <laughs> so the more strictly you, 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 you treat it at the beginning, and after four weeks, we even start with exercising on the, on, on the board with the splints, slightly pulling, slightly eccentric movements. Then after six to eight weeks, you can restart climbing. If you neglect the injury, then you getting to the condition my wife had. That's how I met her, because she had an A4 injury, which mm -hmm. was not treated. And then after three months of continuous pain, she developed certainly a very bad tenosynovitis, tendonitis, as the late people say. In that case, it's obviously I, I inject cortisone or steroids. So like after eight to 10 weeks, that's the point or the time frame where I would consider injections. Well, and obviously, there must be some ways to prevent these injuries in the first place. What are some training tips that you would recommend to improve strength, minimizing injuries? And is there any difference in these prevention techniques with regard to a younger versus an older versus a recreational versus a competitive climber? That is the most difficult question, I think. Um, from... Looking at my patients, I have pulley injuries in climbing beginners who climb a 5A or something, like a fairly easy rock climb, to people who climb hard. On the other hand, I have friends who climb 515 in the front year and don't warm up, never. We try to find preventive measures by scientific ways to prevent injuries or what would be 
possible, we did not find anything. I still anecdotally or like empirically think that upper body complete physique, core strength, reducing finger stress, all of that will help. I do not think that it is effective to completely not do any crimping or do not train on crimps. I don't think I would, I would not, I don't train crimps on the board, mm-hmm. on the hangboard, yes, or, or do compass boarding with crimps. But I, I think if you are outside there and it's a small hole, you're automatically going to, to crimp and then you also need to train a little bit that stress that you will later on do anyway. I think one, one very effective way is what uh, Stuart Watson, he's a British PT and was a British climbing team member for a, time, for a long time and he's a physio in, in, in Austria nowadays and works with the Austrian team. They train half crimp. They train with the whole team basically to not do too much crimping but hold most holds in a half crimp position which at the beginning, if you're half crimping, you feel like you don't have enough strength for doing it, for the moves. If you feel weaker over time when you, when you actually work on that, you have the same strength. There are studies on that. So I think a half crimp is a very good preventive way against pulley injuries. On the other hand, seriously, if you, if you live in the Franken era and you climb 513s, 514s, I think once in your career, you're going to have a pulley injury. So what we're talking about is we've got the open crimp, then we have the closed crimp, and then we have this half crimp where the thumb is approximating the index finger, but it's not wrapping around the other fingers. Is that how you would Yes. We're not completely, like the full crimp, we understand it's a complete overextension in the distal interphalangeal joint, while in the half crimp, it's only, it's still slightly flexed. So this is interesting. I'm apologizing for segueing, but this is always interesting. So, for instance, in the Frankenjura or maybe in the Alps or even in New Mexico where we climb, we have a lot of these pocket types of grips as well. Are there any differences with these sort of injuries versus some of the crimp grips that we discuss when we're on edges? Yes, but not in behalf of pulley injuries. Mm. Like pulley injuries happen... And I think the reason is, and we see more, most pulley injuries on the fourth finger, and this is just also, again, biomechanics. If you look at the, when you're holding a hold, you have a flexion of the fingers, but you have an inward rotation of the hand, and you have an angulation of the wrist in the, in the direction of the small finger. So there's more load to the ulnar aspect of the hand than to the radial. And then secondary, this, the fifth finger, the small finger, is much shorter than the fourth finger in most people. So at, obviously, like these three, they protect each other. They have a body around, but that one doesn't help the fourth finger. So you have a difference in distance, in length, and an inward rotation because you're pulling in, into the direction of your center of, of body. Right. And that stresses mostly the fourth finger. And that will be always like that, even if you have the fingers stacked, if you have two fingers or, or, or fingers on an edge. What we see here more or in other areas, like you have pocket areas, like the wild iris, ten sleep, something like that. If you use a monof, monos, then you have joint capsular injuries. Uh, you have injuries to the lumbrical muscles. I have a lot of um, capsulitis in the, in, the, in the joints itself or collateral injuries. That's also more affecting the joint capsule than 
it's hard to get a pulley injury on a mono because you you would actually need to uh, people do that, but not not so many. And for cracks, more of your vertical cracks, you have a whole different type of injury pattern, right? Uh, lumbricals, lumbrical strains, things like that, versus well, maybe some joints as well. But you're torquing, you could get fractures, things like that. Yes, but obviously, you know, we don't have many cracks, so I don't see many crack climbing injuries when I'm not traveling to visit my friends in the states. So. Um, I see fractures, as you say, like from the torque. You see joint capsular injuries. I don't think, I'm not sure. I need to ask you guys. Do you see pulley injuries in a crack? I haven't. I I'm really haven't. No. Yeah. But, you know, some, sometimes people leave their fingers in the crack. And yes, I have seen dislocations, and that's pretty unpleasant. But. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I can see that. One other type of pulley injury we haven't discussed yet, or which is also a, a way it can happen, is like a fatigue fracture. If you have a tenosynovitis and you get a cortisone injection, which I do a lot, we have an algorithm, and, and it, I think it's correct and it's important, but if you neglect the, the rest afterwards, then a secondary pulley rupture can happen. I've had a few cases where actually one was my finger, our hand surgeon did a correct in, in, injection, but I thought I could climb on the next day. But actually, you know, the cortisone is active for the half time of like 10 days. So it actually weakens the pulley structure over the next days. And mine just happened while I warmed up on the chuck. It was basically like old leather torn. It, was just, mm -hmm. it just gave way. And I, I had other people who described it in the same way. So if you get a cortisone into injection, you certainly need to adhere to the rest afterwards. Otherwise, you're just more prone for any other ligamentous capsular injury or tendon injuries. Interesting. For the duration of the time that you were supposed to have rested, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, so lastly, I wanted to finish off with maybe any dietary interventions that you're aware of that's evidence-based. Some people talk about collagen, branched-chain amino acids. I know there's some podcasts out there that discuss this using vitamin C. I mean, there's all kinds of things. Becoming vegan. Uh, I talked to some climbers this weekend and it's basically all over. Nobody has an idea of what to do nutritionally. And although this goes a bit off of our journal club discussion, our paper, are you aware of any interventions nutritionally that can stave off some of these injuries or is this all hocus pocus? I don't know any paper who did any research on all of that. There's one uh, French publication who writes that actually a dehydration increases the risk of a pulley rupture, but there is no data supporting that. It's just a statement. I am personally not that much into this nutritious stuff. You know, I'm German. We drink beer. We eat meat. We, we just live normal. Bavarian. I know about the research of the collagens and uh, some of the research may be pretty interesting. I totally agree. I still think the collagens would only make sense in a very highly trained athlete if you're speaking about top 20 in the world. And we had this discussion. I had it with one of my athletes I'm taking care of since years who had two ligamentous injuries in the short term. 
And then we thought about maybe we sup would supplement him, just maybe it would help actually. The problem is he's obviously competing and competing in the World Cups and in Tokyo. And it's not completely allowed substance from the doping control. You have forbidden substances. It's not a forbidden substance. It's but not. then you have allowed supplements. And it's not on the list of any allowed supplements. And if it's not on that list, we cannot use it. Just to be sh safe that it would be a false positive doping control. So there was no way to use it on them. It does not say that it has anything to do with doping. It's just not, not proven to be allowed. Vitamin C and stuff like that, yeah, well, it may help in recovery, but there's no data supporting that it would actually, no data I know of, that it would actually reduce the risk of a pulley injury. I still think a healthy diet is, is supportive, even if I'm Franconian. Yeah, beer sausage and uh, pretzels, I love it. Yes. Uh, <laughs> what about you, Paulo? What are you eating now? What, what's your personal dietary regimen? Do you have one? actually follow a pretty similar ideology of not supplementing very much. I had a brief period in college where I went through the classic working out phase and you're drinking, you know, exorbitant amounts of protein after every, after every workout and supplementing with BCAAs. But, and I did, I did, you know, see a lot of muscle growth then, but I don't, again, I don't take any supplements now, um, now that I mostly just do rock climbing and don't do any uh, weightlifting per se outside of rock climbing specific exercises. I know there there certainly are studies who who support defining that like taking proteins after training within the first hour increase your recovery. Mm -hmm. Same what we are using is like carbohydrate drink within the first hour after an extensive training. I do with the ski mountaineering team. They all get colds in the winter, so they're sick all the time because they run around and basically nothing in in the snowstorm. So. For the immune system, it is actually supportive to give them an, an electrolyte drink within the first hour. There's data on that. So there's some things which work. I don't know if you need to use that a lot in climbing because you gain weight. Protein supplements in a minor way, I actually do that myself if I'm in a training phase because I have a friend who makes them, gives them for me for free, and <laughs> it's just easy. And they started supporting it, but I'm not over serious about the whole stuff do you follow a specific gram to kilo ratio when you supplement <laughs> no. i take three scoops sure <laughs> i i looked at it once and i decided okay three scoops is going to be okay for me right now and that works out right and and I, we have this discussion with the teams and members of teams all the time if you train 30 hours a week already then you are on your max there's it, it's kind of difficult to increase training load so what kind of screw can you still turn to increase your climbing ability? And of course, you come to, 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 to nutrition. And I, I, I made that sound a bit funny. I just want to say, like, I think a general-based nutrition is fine. And I don't think you need to be over-extreme. But of course, all the soccer teams have nutritionists nowadays on board. And it, it, it may help a lot of people. But it also helps because... A lot of them just eat generally bad food. I'm helping with, the, with the, the, the local basketball team who is not playing as good as your guys are, but like they're the German champions in six years. And what they get is like a free credit card of one of the fast food chains. So they would eat, have their dinner every night. Hmm. Cold pizza for breakfast. Yum, yum, yum. Wow. 
Well, I appreciate you all coming on. Are there any last things you might want to add before we finish? No, I'm very thankful that you went through all the epic to having us, that you are so interested in our article. For the article, all the applause goes to Paolo. And I'm still, I need to say that, I'm very psyched to have a young doctor of being at that time a medical student who actually produces such a great work. If I, if my fellows would, do, would be able to do write an article this good, I'd be very happy. Unfortunately, they aren't. So <laughs> yeah, all the applause goes to Paolo. Thanks so much. I would just say, I don't know when this podcast will go live, but tune in to the World Cups coming up here in Salt Lake uh, next week. I'm, I'm uh, spectating and actually volunteered to, to usher the athletes from their isolation zone to the competition zone. So that'll be fun, but that's the extent of my involvement. Well, very good. Well, thank you so much. And we will see you guys in the climbing land. Awesome. Thank you guys. Cool. Thank you yeah. so much. Have a great day. The Wilderness and Environmental Medicine live podcast from the Wilderness Medical Society, our official journal, is published by Elsevier. Do the CME questions at wms.org under members.